Jacqueline Clancy is a certified nurse consultant, expert witness who specializes in cases involving delay of care and interfacility transfers, some of the most treacherous times in a patient's journey. The majority of her career was spent in identifying gaps in care, reviewing chronologies and timelines for opportunities for improvement, deviations from best practice, and writing protocols for future prevention of injury and malpractice. She designed an interfacility transfer center for overseeing 23 hospitals and designed a logistics center for a university hospital. So on today, we discuss how she got into the field of being a nurse consultant and expert witness in delay of care and interfacility transfers the recurring issues she's seen in litigation so we can prevent them from occurring, suggestions for how physicians can get involved in this type of legal work, and how to minimize risk to patients and minimize our legal exposure. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. And now a word from this week's sponsor, Laurel Road. Buying a home like the one I grew up in has been my dream. We had this great yard where my brother and I would run under the sprinklers. We had a big kitchen table where I told my parents I got into med school. Now I'm a member of Laurel Road for Doctors, where I got a great rate on a physician mortgage and was eligible for no money down and no PMI, so I could make new memories in my own home. Laurel Road for Doctors. Banking insights and benefits uniquely designed for doctors. See laurelroad.com slash doctorhome for full terms and conditions. Laurel Road is a brand of KeyBank NA and Equal Housing Lender. NMLS 399797. Jacqueline Clancy, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Brad. So what's your origin story? How did you get into legal nurse consulting? Well, I've been a nurse for over 22 years, um, and I had a, a whole journey of wonderful experiences that have led me there. But the short, concise version is, um, as I progressed through my RN, uh, I started asking questions that no one had answers to, like... How come every time my patient codes and I'm managing a cardiac unit that there's no ICU bed for the patient to go to and the like questions. So I started looking into legal nurse consulting then, and then I got delayed because I was promoted. I established a logistics center for university hospital. Um, Then again, I looked into going into legal nurse consulting, and then I established an interfacility transfer center for that hospital and then expanded it over... um, very many hospitals, also incorporating EMS fleet and helicopter. And at that point, I still was looking to get into it and the stars aligned for me. And believe it or not, someone just randomly reached out to me on LinkedIn and asked me if I would be an expert witness for them without any advertising or anything. And I was like, yes, this is my uh, foot in the door. Let me do this. And of course, I absolutely loved it. I brought a lot of value to the attorney, also the healthcare team. This was a defense case. And then um, from then on, it's in history. I uh, resigned my position, opened up shop, and I'm almost on two years since then now. Oh, wow. So this is what you do exclusively now? Exclusively. Oh, wow. Wow, wow, wow. So can you go in a little more detail about the types of cases you see? Oh, actually, before, sorry, before I get to that question, I think the answer to why was there no bed, ICU bed for your patient is that hospitals are at capacity by design, right? Empty beds don't make money. And so you, you don't want to have 
empty beds, you'd rather be a little pushing that limit of capacity because that's what economics dictate makes the most economic sense. It's not what's in the patient's best interest, clearly, um, or in the staff's best interest, but you know, for the economic saliency of the organization, right? That's that's why they do it. Absolutely. And the, the other half is many times there are actual beds. There's just not staff to take care of patients laying in those beds. So that's that's also an issue. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's issues all around right now, right? There aren't enough staff in hospitals or in restaurants or in, you know, like, you know, everyone's looking to hire people right now. Um, so, okay. So let's, again, let's go to that question of the, a little more detail about the types of cases you see. Clearly you can't divulge details of, of those cases, but just, you know, if you could just flesh it out a little bit more. So um, where my passion brings me is in cumulative delay of care. Um, and that's basically when, if you look at any one section of a case that it doesn't seem so heinous or egregious in that one actual instance, but on the milestone of a patient journey, if there's 10 of those semi delays and they all add up, that can lo uh, equal loss of life, loss of limb, loss of bowel, et cetera. So um, many of the cases that I see have to deal with not uh, appropriating the right level of care for the patient uh, upon inception of milestone event clinically. Um, also not uh, providing proper level of care. Uh, let's say they were supposed to go to an ICU critical care and they were holding in the AED for four days. Um, in the interfacility transfer center side, I see a lot of delay of care um, as far as even calling that initial consult in. And, you know, my advice to any physician experiencing this would be call that consult in right away and cover your own butt. Because when somebody like me gets in that record, the first thing I'm going to say is why is the ED physician opining on a subject that's outside of their expertise and now has resulted in a negative outcome. And in most of these cases, if the patient is that critical, you end up seeing it circle down the road and then they finally pull the consult in and now you have this huge hunk of delay. Um, just from getting that expert opinion initially. So I think that's going to be one of the questions on the minds of the listeners is the, the types, the specialties of physicians that you see in these cases, because that's at the front of our, our minds. Like, am I going to be the one held liable for this? So it sounds like the emergency medicine physicians are going to be named in those suits uh, to see when they initiated the transfer of care and maybe ICU attendings as well? Well, you know, it depends who's involved. Obviously, the portals of entry to the hospital are going to be the ones that are taking the bulk of this. And then obviously, as you get through the floors in acute care, you're going to be calling those specialists in, but it's usually not as high rated as uh, as the ED. Unfortunately, the ED docs get are the uh, redheaded stepchildren, so to speak, in these scenarios, and they get hit with un uncontrollable uh, circumstances. And, you know, that's where I really pride myself and I bring in, and I also mentor legal nurse consultants as well to bring in, is this a person issue or is this an actual process issue? And nine, ten, nine times out of 10, it's systemic. So um, I actually prefer to do plaintiff med, med mal. Don't hate me. Let me finish first. But um, what I bring to the table is bringing in that higher level accountability. What were the staffing issues? 
were specialists or staff forced to work out of their area of expertise because of lack of planning and reaction on a high executive level. Um, when was the last time there was training provided uh, to the staff on the particular topic that was violated? Is there a policy within standards of best practice and within the current times? So all of these are certain depictions that I'm bringing in to support if there's a systemic problem or not. And you would be surprised what you find requesting these sorts of documents alongside with your case. Well, we're going to skip ahead to a question that we were planning to get to later, which is, um, like, as you said, you sometimes uncover that it's not an individual that's liable. Let's just, for instance, the emergency medicine physician realizes that the patient needs a critical care bed, needs critical care. So they call the critical care consult. The care team immediately comes down. They assess the patient. They want them transferred. There are no ICU beds. There are no, like, there's no, there's no capacity for that patient. So they're being managed in like the trauma bay. Meanwhile, there's a trauma going on next door, right? So, so everyone's doing their best. Nobody has, nobody has, you know, and, and, and you're supposed to give at least like, B minus level care. Like that's the standard of care because that's the mean. No, really, this is what it, how it's supposed to go. Like B minus in a large bell curved class is the mean. So you're supposed to be giving the mean of, of care, right? You're not, not necessarily A plus amazing. I can't believe you caught that type of care. That's what everyone hopes for, but we can't all operate at that capacity all the time. So let's just say everyone's giving, but everyone is giving in this scenario, A plus care. Okay. But something bad happened and it's a systems issue. So who ends up called, who ends up being liable in this situation? Is it like the CMO because the CMO is the chief medical officer? Is it the COO because they didn't give the CMO enough in their budget? Is it the CEO because they were overseeing the both of them and, 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 and the things weren't being managed appropriately? Like they, they chose to close a building because it wasn't to capacity enough. Like who's... Who's being held accountable in those situations? So the attorneys are changing their game. They're not just naming, you know, Nurse uh, Smith and Dr. John anymore. They're naming the whole entity. And now, as we've seen, healthcare is uh, like Red Rover, Red Rover, please come over. And everyone's banned and joined these huge forces together. But with that, with that enlargement should be should come higher accountability and to not bigger pockets. Exactly. And not expect your providers to be give B minus level care with their hands tied behind their back and a blindfold on because that's impossible. But yet when you see some of these med mal lawsuits uh, play out, it's very interesting because the defense that comes from the healthcare is representing the healthcare entity, the physician and the nurse. So who do you think is in that number one interest of that defense attorney? if you do not have your own independent counsel. I don't know. Right. right. Well, I'll tell you what, it's not a nurse and it's not a doctor. So then what ends up, what ends up happening? How does this play out? Well, I, I mean, you know, in my opinion, I see, you know, the crap slide downhill. So the highest point is going to remain the safest. And that's how systemic policies do not get identified because it's easier just to say this was an outlier, or it's easier just to say, oh no, that was that was a, a negligence on uh, Dr. Smith there. It's not so, easy to stand okay. up and say, I've seen this happen 10 times and I have failed to change anything in the circumstance to prevent it from repeating itself. 
Well, I doubt you're going to have someone say like, all right, all right, this was my fault during the case, right? They might behind closed doors say, you know what, this is a problem and and we definitely need to rectify this, but they're not going to, you know, jump on the grenade and get sued for whatever it is. Um, but But when you end up opining that like this is a systems issue, does it end up being like they, they just, you know, uh, some poor nurse gets thrown under the bus and ends up being held accountable or does the, do the higher, juries, oh, that settles. Settle. So they just settle. And it goes, so they, the system, so the system settles. Got it. Well, the system actually, in, in some of these cases, the system employs the physician. And so the physician is kind of like an arm of the system in that case, right? Because the med mal comes from the physician and the physician's premiums don't go up because that physician doesn't pay premiums. The system pays the premium for that employed physician. Like it's different for us in private practice because we have our dues, our med mal dues that, that will go up if we're deemed to be high risk because we've been sued a bunch of times. Right. So that's... um. It, that it's it's interesting how that how that plays out that the system just comes to the table and says, okay. So I wonder I wonder what happens to those individual practitioners because we've got you know databases where if they find if you settle you get put in this database. But I guess that might be part of the settlement too. Yeah, I can't I can't comment on yeah. that. That's a yeah, little yeah. Behind the scenes for me, even. That's uh. That's just I'm just thinking out loud. Okay, so um. Okay, so um, let's go back to the specialties of physicians, right? So, because um, I'm also wondering about transfer, like interfacility transfers. So you have a community hospital that's transferring to the academic hospital. That often takes a long time. Now, I'm in residency. I was at that academic hospital, and sometimes I'm on the other other end of that transfer because there's a hospital, and you know, you used to be on Long Island. Some of the hospitals, don't, I'm an ENT, some of the hospitals don't have any ENTs. So they need an ENT, it gets transferred to our hospital. Um, but often that takes takes hours. That can take a really long time. And some of these patients are in real precarious positions where like they're, they need the care, but they're not stable enough to be transferred. Like, you know, I'm not even sure where I'm going with that question. Oh yeah, but, I, but like, I, I got it. I'll pick it up. So, um, you know, sad stakingly enough, there is very little regulation around the interfacility transfer arena. You you have a governing body of basically EMTALA, and that's basically it. And most people aren't even aware of what EMTALA means in the transfer arena. They just know, oh, that's the anti-dumping law. I have to screen anyone who comes into the ED no matter what. But there's actually a back end to EMTALA, which says that if your patient needs a higher level of care and you don't have the capability, you're obligated to transfer that patient out. So that's one side of it. The other side of it, and this was something that uh, frequently came up to me in my clinical practice, and I still see the ripple effects in med mal is, is the patient too sick to be transferred or are they too sick not to be? Because another huge, dun, 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 <laughs> another yeah. piece is, there's a huge liability piece in taking those life-saving precautions. Um, the only arena that is clearly spelt out in this is that birthing mom and she has to deliver the baby before they're able to transfer her. They're not going to be moving her actively in labor. But outside of that, it's a real gray arena. And when I'm going into cases, 
And I'm seeing, um, I just had a case I did the other week where I'm seeing they wanted to transfer the patient to a facility that offered specialty care and that facility denied them with no rationale. And now the next steps in this case, and the patient of course had a very negative outcome. And the next steps in that case are to see, um, pull those transfer center recordings and find out, is that actually, was the patient denied based on capacity? Were they denied um, based on a policy that said they didn't meet a certain criteria? And, you know, and this is where the systemic issues come in because nine times out of 10, there won't be a rationale provided and, and you need to be able to document that. And you also need criteria because if you don't have criteria for your admission or denial, then how are you managing exactly what you're taking in and, and saying no to anything at that point? And that would be my arguable point I would bring. I, I, I'm thinking of ENT cases where, um, you know, there's, a, there's an airway right? Patient has an unstable airway. Now, if we transfer them, they might lose their airway and transfer. And then, you know, the, there's only the, the paramedics to try and get to stabilize the airway, but there's no ENT at the hospital they're at right now. And, and that's really what they need in order to get. So like, you know, these, sometimes they're, they're just these impossible situations, but I, you know, I also think that hopefully families understand that sometimes these are impossible situations and I've, yeah, uh, I think Absolutely. often, often they do. Often they get it. Because yeah, as long as you communicate, not as long as you communicate, because people can sue you anywhere for anything. But I think it helps to involve them in the conversation. Yeah. And document as you just, yes, yes. It's a YouTube channel, but it's also a podcast. Uh, she just gave the hand signal for write it down. Yes. Document everything. Document the decision making. Document the um the conversation that you had document that the family's in the loop on that. It's, it's, uh, yeah. You, you want to make sure whoever's reviewing this case too is going to look at it and man, man, I would want this nurse to have been my nurse, man. I would want this doctor to have been my doctor. Right. Yeah. And the, the other reason why this whole arena is, is, uh, like infested with med mal, you know, rooting back to that delay of care, I would suggest to you guys, when you're thinking about if I need to pull this consult or get that opinion, do it right away because that's not the one piece. There's a whole cumulative milestone event for this patient. You need to find a hospital that will have a specialist and then that will actually say yes. And then that actually has capacity to take the patient. Many uh, well-known uh, hospitals and health systems will not take a patient if the receiving nurse didn't get report yet. And it doesn't matter that they're an hour or two hours away and that the ambulance wasn't set up yet or they're not on their way or the helicopter's rotor isn't going. So you can see between a doctor's acceptance, pulling the specialty in, arranging for EMS transport and whatever delays that they have associated with that, the nurse getting report, the availability, I mean, that's, that's not even all of them, but that's five right there. So if each of those has, you know, even a 30 minute delay, that could be the difference in an outcome. Crazy, right? Yeah. 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 Okay. So, so how do we mitigate our risk if we're aside from just documenting, right? Because I'm, I'm wondering if there are physicians out there who are in order to mitigate their risk of being named in a case are writing things down like, for the 10th time this week, we are out of ICU beds. And so the patient is currently boarding in the ED. Have you seen any language like that in in cases? Now, I'm not recommending it, right? You don't. It was less. It's, it's unprofessional it less. and it's a little, it's a little, you know, you, throw your, you might lose your job for documenting something like that. But, uh, but have, have you seen that? 
Oh, post COVID is a whole a whole new world in documentation, um, and that's right. it's like reading uh, like a, a great mystery novel. When I get these records, because the, the entertainment you know provided, you really can capture what's going on in that moment, and people aren't holding back anymore. Um, and you know, I don't know if that's necessarily a bad thing because everyone took their Hippocratic oath, and that says put the patient first. But, you know, to your point, you can also get in uh, turbulent waters if you're if you're documenting things that are also insinuating uh, negligence on other parties, specifically yeah. the ones that are in charge of your employment. Yeah. OK, so so let's talk about mitigating risk a little more. So what are some lessons that you'd like you'd like our audience to take away from what you've learned? from your time reviewing these types of cases? Like, what is it that we can learn from you so that we can be better physicians and take better care of our patients? Not just mitigating our risks for documentation's sake, but actually, you know, trying to to, to make sure our patients fare better. You know, I, I think obviously everyone knows having that relationship with the patient and the family uh, is, is very uh, saving in and of itself, keeping them abreast, not allowing them to come up with their own assumptions that would most likely be worse than the actual scenario that's going on, documenting those updates. Um, oh, no, I apologize. I don't mean mitigating a risk of being sued. I mean, like, like making sure the patients have a positive uh, or don't have a negative outcome. You know, like with these with these delay of cares, with these transfers, like these are the most precarious times for patients. So what have you learned that we can do better in terms of, you know, taking care of those patients? Is it, you know, communicating better with the nurses? Is it communicating better with the receiving facility? Is it like, you know, what can we do better with regards to patient care? Um, in, in this in this arena, it's really nothing that you can do per se because there's so oh, much. <laughs> <laughs> there's like nothing, there's, nothing. Okay. <laughs> in arranging it in real time, there's nothing okay. more that you can do because there's too many hands holding the pot, and that's why it's so imperative to have that overarching policy. So when you are going in and experiencing this in real time, you know we're so overburdened many times. The last things a provider wants to do is report how crappy their experience they just lived through was and then have to repeat it and then have their boss ask them to document and point and name because it's just an extra burden. But until people really start um, returning to that and standing up and not accepting the, the lack of guidelines or instructions, you're, you're essentially leaving yourself on a hook. Does that make sense? Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess if you do have these types of concerns about your own, about your own health system, it would make sense to start out having a conversation rather than documenting it. In, in I don't know. Actually, I'm not. A, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not. A, I'm gonna. Advi- I'm not gonna advise on this uh, because there's. It makes sense to have a paper trail with regards to email, but at the same time, you don't want to jeopardize your own employment by you know saying certain things. So, you know, maybe, maybe consult with a lawyer first and then, and then, you know, try and address this at your, at, at your own facility. And uh, to your point, document, document, document. Yeah. Um, yeah. It sounds like these are some, some complicated uh, system wide problems that you're, that you're getting involved in. Yeah. Many times I'll see, uh, you know, someone will bring me a case as a run of the mill, like, decubitus ulcer, let's say, 
And I had a very young man who was admitted to a, uh, he came out with a stage four and that's why the case was brought to me. So I started saying to myself, you know, why the hell does this young man have a decubitus ulcer? And I went through the chart and it ended up, he presented to a small community hospital with an umbilical hernia that was palpable, palpate umbilical contents, blood pressure over 200, a whole bunch of pain, the whole nine. And they didn't bring the guy to the OR for over six hours. And he lost 85% of his small bowel over that. And they had, they had no clue that that was a delay of care. Now, do I, do I blame the surgeon? No, the surgeon actually wrote in, in their notes very well. If I, you know, basically in lack of better terms, if I could have got this patient earlier, there would have been a better outcome. But where, where was that? Again, I go back to the systems. Where's the policy yeah. say, hey, we know we're a little community hospital who doesn't have the surgical services, especially on holidays, nights, weekends, et cetera. There should be something guiding those physicians. Don't wait for the surgeon and the delay and all of these things going back and forth. What is your next move? Where is the policy on that? And that was yeah. of course missing as it is in many of these scenarios. Because, you know, on the flip side, the ED doc can also, if they start sending everything out of the hospital, you know, you'll have your execs be banging on your door saying, why are you throwing money out the back door? Yeah, yeah. It's not all happening in a vacuum. So so if we had an audience member that would be interested in getting involved in this type of legal consulting, um, I mean, you said you were on LinkedIn, you had just your expertise visible on LinkedIn and someone just, you know, at, uh, met, DM'd, sorry, I'm Gen X, uh, <laughs> D, DM'd you, D, is that the right term? Dis, direct message you, yes. Uh, so if we had a physician that was interested in, in similar cases, right, if they felt like they had this type of expertise, one, do you think that physicians do have this type of expertise because we're, we're uh, not necessarily in these managerial roles? And if so, where would you direct them? I, I think uh, for interfacility specifically, um, it's it's few and far between. I find many people in the healthcare industry that actually really um, know it to a granular level. But I would say um, if you're looking to expert witness, um, Dan Salmon is a great resource. I know he was on here um, a little while back. You can reach out to me. I work with a large network of legal nurse consultants, and I can tell you in my standard report when I do reviews, I'm identifying the specialty of the best expert witness to pull in. So send on the resumes. I have my own library and a large network. I'd be more than happy to speak with you, chat, and refer. And when you are opining on cases, just keep your eye open to that balcony view because I see many um, physician expert witnesses come in and they're very much honed in on their specialty as they should, but don't let that shade what else is going on in the background and could be other contributing factors. Well, that's a good lead into where can we find you online? <laughs> um, I'm on LinkedIn, Jacqueline Clancy. Uh, I am on Facebook. Also, uh, I have a website, www.jnclancy.com. And I'd be more than happy to speak with anyone. Well, Jacqueline Clancy, thank you so much for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage 
Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.